Well, into the Word we go. So 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've uh, just joined us and you've not been on our journey through 1 Peter, let me just uh, say it's okay, because I'm going to give you a quick overview of where we've been. We've been looking at uh, our salvation and then at how that spells out into four commands. Those four commands were woven through various aspects of life, uh, whether it's our uh, husbands and wives to masters and slaves. And what we've we've seen in chapter three and we're going to see in four and five is that what's orbiting through all of around all of this is his Christology. That's Peter's study of Christ, because the the call to fulfill these commands, and even in the midst of suffering, he says to his readers, it's because Christ is our model. Christ suffered, you need to suffer. It's expected. So grow up. You know, it's like, remember my daughter, even last night, she goes, that's not fair. I said, don't say that. Uh, life's not fair, get over it. Uh, uh, and Christ is, is the model for us. And, and another thing that's orbiting through this whole system is his eschatology. And that's the study of end times. Uh, my grandmother used to say, now, you don't want to be doing that when the Lord comes back, right? It's her eschatology, right? There's an end coming, and you need to be ready. And so it's his eschatology, it's his Christology that's kind of just woven through all of this. And we see that in chapter 3. We're going to see that in 4. The, the, we're skipping a section in 3 because, uh, one, we don't have time. Uh, secondly, we teased a little bit of it out last week, and I'm going to tease a little bit of it out this week as we go through the text. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. So, since Christ suffered in the flesh, which he just highlighted in 3, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude or intention because, here's the cause, the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin in that he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God and not human desires. That's not the first time he's talked about human desires. Look back at chapter 2, verse 11. Remember this? In 2.11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires. The sin, the, the things that law of... Um, of this world. And we'll talk more about that. And he goes into verse 3, 4. This is the why. The time is past when sufficient for you to do what the non-Christians desire. He's playing off that term. You lived then in debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, drinking bouts, and wanton idolatries. So they are astonished, this is the world, when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness. It's an interesting metaphor. That's the outpouring of a wide stream. You you just wallow. No, you're not wallowing in it. You, you're engulfed in it. Then they vilify you. Verse 5, they will face a reckoning before Jesus Christ who stands ready. It, it's, it's imminent. To judge the living and the dead. Now it was for the very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. So that though they were judged in the flesh... By human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. Let's unpack this text. It's extremely powerful. I love this section of 1 Peter. He says in verse 1, arm yourselves. It's a military term. This is not the first occasion in the New Testament where military motif is used for the believer. In fact, I've given you several texts there in your notes 
and you can see those Romans 6, Ephesians 6. I mean, think about Ephesians 6. What is that? What's that passage? Put on the armor of God. Remember that? If you were in Sunday school, they brought out that plastic armory that you had to put on to reflect. Putting on the armor of God, 1 Thessalonians 5, the same thing. It's an interesting, uh, in fact, I, I had a question there in your notes as I look at this, is what, what does this military, this martial language convey or concerning the, the Christian life? What does it tell us? It, we're in a spiritual battle. Yeah, what else? We're going to suffer. We're going to be prepared. It's not. Yeah. There's a greater purpose. Sides to choose. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be identified with a particular group by what you wear. There's going to be casualties. Yeah. Change our desires. Yep. Uh, you, you got the idea. And he says, you need to arm yourself with the same attitude. What's the attitude? Well, I, I put this in your notes. I think it's the intention that, we're, that suffering is inevitable. The casualties are coming. Uh, <clears throat> the New Testament is very clear. <laughs> if you're going to follow the one who died on the cross, you're going to need to die to self. You too are going to suffer. And, and Jesus even said it, right? The world hates me, they're going to hate you. The more you show Christ, the more you're going to be hated. Just, and if you're not, then we got to, it's just going to come. And boy, we only need to look at the news, right? Uh, you can see the response uh, of this Pakistani uh, lady who's just been, will be released out of prison just because she claims the name of Christ, or the missionary that's just been killed from Indiana in Cameroon, was it, I believe, uh, this, uh, this past week, claiming the name of Christ. It's going to happen. But it, it, our audience for, for Peter are not, are not being killed. They're not having their fingernails pulled out. Uh, they're dealing mainly with being slandered, being harassed. Uh, more of what I would argue is what we encounter here in the U.S. primarily. And that's what he's saying here. He says, listen, you've you got to arm yourself, he states. And then he says here in the latter part of verse 1, because the one who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. It's a, it's a difficult phrase because you're going, what's he talking about here? Who's he referring to? What is he dealing with when he says you're suffering in the flesh? There are a couple views here. The first of these is that it's, uh, some have argued, some scholars argue, we're talking about Jesus. But that doesn't fit with the syntax in verse 2. It goes on to state he that will spend the rest of the time on earth concerned about the will of God. So we seem to be dealing with humanity. And secondly, I'd argue Christ has never sinned. And the text tells us that he has finished with sin. Now, some will argue, well, that's when he took on our sin and paid that uh, it just doesn't fit, I don't think, with the, the grammar, etc. Others have argued, oh, this is a reference to Romans, uh, where we're told we have died to sin, right? And are now alive with Christ. And so that's pulled from Romans 6. Schreiner in his commentary, I think, is right, and I put this in your notes. It's not that believers have died with Christ, but that they should follow Christ in their daily lives by consenting to suffering. Thus, I think the third view 
which many commentators hold, and I think they're correct. We're dealing with a believer who has demonstrated evidence that he or she has broken away from sin itself. Notice what Grudem states there in your notes. The individual has most definitely acted in a way which shows that obeying God, not avoiding hardship, is the most important motivation to his or her action. It fits with verse 2, right? That he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God. Sin is in the past. It reminds me again of 1 John chapter 3. A believer doesn't sin. You go, whoa, 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 are you telling us we can be perfect this side of eternity? No, because earlier in 1 John, he says, if we sin, we can ask for forgiveness, God forgives. But sin is foreign to the believer. It just is. I've had many students in my office through the years saying, hey, I'm not sure that I'm saved. <clears throat> and you probe, and, you know, there's usually a sin in their life that they're dealing with. And to me, that's very promising, <laughs> If, this, if they're convicted over sin, that's, that, that tells me a lot, right? But if I have a kid in my office and he's embracing sin and is not convicted over it, then I'm kind of wondering, where's the Holy Spirit in his life, right? Um, if you're not convicted over sin, if, if when you've blown it, it doesn't bother you, mm -hmm, I'd do a little inventory. It should because Peter's saying here, hey, you have finished with sin. You're done with it. You've broken away from that. This is the life you're now wanting to be identified with. Again, not perfection, but this is where we're looking at. And, and notice in chapter 4, verse 2, there's no gray area. It's either human desire or it's God's standards. But you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? In fact, that's the problem with verse 3. He says, as a Christian... You, as, when you were a non-Christian, you did those things. That season is done, right? Uh, no more. Uh, and, and notice what else you can tease out of here of verse 2. He says, the, the rest of his time on earth. There's no retirement plan for the Christian life. Uh, I was blessed to spend a lot of time with Charles Ryrie a dear friend, a theologian of the past. He's now with the Lord. Uh, he's 80-some years old, and he was still going and speaking. Uh, I, said, I said, Charles, are you going to retire? He goes, there is no retirement plan in the Lord's work. You know, here he had uh, a bad hip, et cetera. He was in a lot of pain. He said, i got to be serving the Lord. And uh, he was working on a book. I mean, here he is, 80-some years old, you know, uh, faithful to the end, the, the, the call, and so I, I mentioned that in your notes. There's, there's, this isn't a season of life when you serve the Lord. There's, there's not a, a time when all of a sudden you go golfing again. Not, not in God's plan, right? The rest of his time on earth, it's concerned about the will of God. It's an amazing statement. Well, he gets there to, to verse 3, and this is at the top of your notes on the next page. And, and here's where he's saying, listen... You, you aren't involved in these sins that you used to live. And really, you can break these down into four categories. Uh, he's got debauchery, which I mentioned in your notes, while well, quote Marshall. It's performing outrageous acts uh, from 
orgies to etc. He's saying that that's done. You used to live like this, and that season is, is phased out now. Uh, evil desires, you see there, usually referring to lust. Um, drunkenness, carousing, and drinking bouts, I think you understand that. Really, it's, it's talking about life that is bent on fulfilling your physical desires. And then wanton idolatries, living a lifestyle, etc. You've been there, you've done that. <laughs> no more, is what Peter is saying to the believers. One of the questions, again, that I've asked in your notes, does this list of sinful behavior seem exhaustive? How do you respond? And this isn't the nasty nine or the dirty dozen. So how do you respond to this? What's Peter trying to do with this rather abridged list, or so it would appear? I'm sorry? Prick the conscience? cover everything how's he covering everything <laughs> turn to first john 2 you dick's on the right path i like it first john chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 i mean i i if Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, how can you say that when there was no computers and internet? Because 1 John 2 tells us. Look what he says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. There it is. It goes back to those human desires. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John, Everything is black and white with John. Either you love him or you hate him. There's not middle ground. Then he says, because all, this is 1 John 2, 16, because all that is in the world, and here it is, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the arrogance produced by material possessions is not from the Father. Those are the three realms of sin. Yes, Lou. <laughs> yeah, we had a former president of a school, he always say, where are your values? Where's your desires? Right, is not from the Father, but it is from the world, and the world is passing away with all its, watch this, desires. I would argue, and I think you're right, Dick, I think this, this list encompasses those three areas. Right? The, the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. The three major pitfalls. Right? If you want to just do an inventory, how are you doing in those three areas <laughs> or in these areas? I mean, I, I doubt too many of us are struggling with drunkenness maybe or, or uh, orgies, but the bottom undertow is these three areas of First John. Yeah. Where, where, where would you place anger in First John 2? Yeah, Kyle. I'm sorry? Sinful desires. Sinful desires. Uh, I think First John 2, it could fit under pride sometimes, right? I'm in charge, don't do that. Um, uh, usurping your authority, kind of an idea. Uh, I think it, 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 it's still going to fall under those, those areas. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm 
this isn't uh, Wayne Grudem. <laughs> this is a Hoffaditz, so don't quote me on this. To be honest, I, I think it all falls, sin falls to idolatry at the end of the day. You know how John ends his little epistle? I know we're in First Peter, but <laughs> look at First John at the very end. The two go hand in hand. First John ends his little book, and it's the most bizarre thing you've ever seen. He says, little children, guard yourselves from what? Idols. That's not a problem in the church. It's not a problem among the Jews. Formal idolatry ended in the Babylonian exile. So why would he say this to his readers? Because I think what he's dealing with is anything that takes your heart away from God. Self, anger, etc. Uh, one QS, uh, a Dead Sea Scroll, um, argues that idolatry is anything that, that removes your heart from God. Uh, Dead Sea Scroll. And I, I think that's what we're dealing with here. Um, and so, yeah, I think at the end of the day, to me, this is almost a sweeping... Uh, anything with idolatry is, is an issue because... Ultimately, God's standards are not what we're going to do. We're going to replace it with our standards or the world's standards. But it's not God, and it's idolatry. Good. And by the way, uh, as we've been looking in Revelation on Sunday mornings, idolatry is always linked with sexuality. The two go hand in hand. Um, so anyway, that was a hoffaditz. It wasn't in the notes. That was free. Uh, so moving right along, we, we see then, uh, I think, kind of an encompassing idea. So he says, notice the world's response, right? You're going to, I didn't need you to tell me that, Peter. I'm already very aware of that. Number one, they're shocked. Shocked. Notice what he says. They're astonished when you don't rush with them. You mean you're not going to go to the drinking party, you know? You're not going to do this? What do you mean you don't want to look at porn? This is crazy. What's wrong with that? You know, and, uh, and then the second thing is they're going to slander you. Misery loves company. If you're not going to keep company with them, then they're going to make sure you're miserable. <laughs> right? You're not going to be one of us? Then you're just a, a fundamentalist. Right? You're nuts. And the list goes on. And he says, that's what they'll do. They'll vilify you. And that's certainly what happened in the early church in the first century and going into the second century. They were accused of cannibalism because they ate of the flesh and drank of the blood at communion. They were accused of other atrocities, which were not true. And uh, he said, they're going to shock you. They're going to be shocked, and then they're going to slander you. In some circles, but not in all. Uh, there's a lot of secular writings of the latter part of the first going into the second who had a very low view of Christians. Uh, I think it's very similar to what we see today. In some parts or times in the U.S., Christians are applauded, and other times they're hated. Uh, so it, it just a little depends. But there's a potpourri of ideas in the first century and second century. Notice... Uh, well, you can look at that. I've, I've got the notes there for you. But verse 5, notice what happens. He says, to those who are involved in the sins we see of verse 3, he says, there's a day coming when they're going to be judged. Uh, I put this down in your notes. 
fact, it's again, it's Schreiner, and I quote in him, it's under verse 5. Believers should not succumb to the temptation to renounce their faith so that they can enjoy just that, that appreciation of society. Such approval is short-lived, and those who mistreat believers now will be judged in the future. There's a day coming. And, and, and that's, that's been the message that Peter's trying to say is life is short. There's a day when you're going to appear before the Lord. And as a believer, that's why he starts out in, 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 in chapter 1. Look what God has done for you. This is kind of your reasonable service that you do these commands, uh, that you show respect you know, to the Lord, reverence, you walk in holiness, you, you walk in love, etc. This, this is the, the thing you should be doing. Then he says in verse 6, Now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are dead. And the question is, who are the dead? Well, as I mentioned in your notes, he's not, he's not saying that if someone dies, eventually the gospel will be preached to them and then they can then get saved. If, if, uh, there are no second chances. <laughs> and I've given uh, Luke 16 and Hebrews 9, purgatory is not taught in the New Testament, I would argue loud and clear. Uh, secondly, we're not dealing with death referring to spiritual death because in Peter's writings, when he uses the word dead, he is never referring to a spiritual state. He's always referring to the physical. And thus, as I mentioned in your notes, I think the best interpretation is the gospel was preached to individuals who accepted it, were believers, and those individuals are now dead physically. I think that's what he's dealing with here. And so these are individuals who believe the gospel when they were alive. Because he says, so they were judged in the flesh by human standards. How were they judged by human standards? Romans 5, everyone is going to die physically. I didn't need to tell you that. Uh, but uh, no one's exempt. Right? We all are going to face physical death. It's the, it's the punishment based on what Adam did in the garden, and that has fallen on humanity. However, he states in 1 Peter 4, verse 6, that those who have believed, they may live spiritually. He does not use future tense. He uses a present tense in the Greek, meaning it is as good as done even now by God's standards. What are God's standards? Look at verses 21 and 22 of, verse, of chapter 3. The prefigured baptism, which now saves you, this idea that uh, you're identified uh, through faith like Noah in building the ark, and he was saved through the water, demonstrating his, his genuine faith, you too will be. And he says, in good conscience to God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And there it is. In other words, he said, all humanity will be judged with death, physical death. But those who believe will be rewarded with eternal life and resurrected just like Christ. Uh, was the one who is your model, the one who is your standard, the one who has loved you and saved you. And so thus, this is the reason why we don't run uh, with the big dogs anymore and we, we live according to the Lord's standards, His will, according to verse 2. Questions on this text? It's very significant. He's going to hammer this home again. We won't, we won't go any further this morning, but when we get to, we'll, we'll complete chapter 4 uh, next week, we're going to look at this even in greater detail because Peter's now going to flesh that out as we move through chapter 4. But questions on this text?
let me, let me give you a few points to, to walk away with here as we, we look at this. Uh, the first of these, and this is the top of your notes, contentment does not necessarily call for the removal of suffering, but it does call for a re, uh, kind of a reevaluation of our perspective. I wrote in your notes, we need to see the joy of identifying with Christ's suffering, the privilege of resting in Christ's love, and the hope of abiding in Christ's presence for all eternity. Um, Peter understood that. And so, when we get to Second Peter, uh, that's what we're going to look at in January uh, when we resume. Um, Peter appeals to the transfiguration when he saw Christ in all his glory. He said, that's what we're headed for. <laughs> that's what we're looking to. Um, this stuff's exciting, right? And he says, we need to rest in that and, and, and be uh, persevering even in the midst of suffering. Yeah. How do you define suffering? Well, granted, in the New Testament, we see martyrdom, so we see it all at one end. I think for the readers of First Peter, it's being slandered, it's being um, penalized with job, with uh, social networking, etc. So that suffering is vastly different than having your fingernails pulled out. But nonetheless, there's still suffering. Now, does Peter see that martyrdom is a possibility down the road? Possibly for this group. But primarily what they're dealing with is, is slander. I mean, look what it says in verse 4. They vilify you. They don't, he didn't say they kill you. They vilify you. So uh, there's degrees of suffering, but nonetheless, it's suffering. And even in these mild forms, it's easy to want to go back to the old ways, right? To blend in. No one wants to stand out, right? And, and there, there's another question that's looming here is, you know, I've claimed the name of Christ. I'm, this is true, right, Peter? <laughs> you ever ask that question? You know, am I, if I've just bought into a hoax here, or is this some kind of cult, or it really, what I'm embracing, is this true? And that's one of the things Peter tried to address all the way from the beginning, right? Look at your salvation. Look what Christ has done. It's a reminder of what we're dealing with. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I, uh, yeah. Let me, this fits with our second thing here. And uh, what we're just talking about is guarding our commitment to Christ, whether it's the temptation to flirt with sin or to bend under the pressure of our surroundings. That was then, this is now. You name the name of Christ, those things need to go away. And sometimes the uh, thorn in the side is, is more difficult than others. And then that means we need to take on, we're putting on the armor of God if we're to, <laughs> we're to arm ourselves. We're in a battle. And you're going to take measures to secure the win, right? What do you need to do to be proactive? Um, if you're on the defense, you're not going to win. Look at Colossians 3. Uh, you know this text, but Colossians 3. Paul writes to this church that he's never visited. 
He says in verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God. It's about Christ. And by the way, it's peppered, and Paul peppers that in Colossians, and then he goes right into husbands and wives and parents and children and, and ties that in with the relationships. Peter's just doing it at the back end. <laughs> he just dealt with relationships. Now he's dealing with, again, our commitment to Christ. And then finally, one more here as I look at this. Take comfort in knowing that the sufferings of this life are temporary. You've probably heard this, but one martyr for Christ stated to a fellow martyr as they were about to be burned at the stake, do but shut your eyes. The next time they're open, you shall be in the presence of Christ. Isn't that great? So don't drive home with your eyes shut. But do, but do recognize, hey, this world is not our home. You know the text, but 2 Corinthians, look at this passage. It's just a great reminder this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 16 through 18, therefore do not despair. You may have shrink back, is the other way it's rendered. But even if our physical body is wearing away, and it is, our inner person is being renewed day by day, for our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That is why Peter will say, hey, follow the will of God. Even in the midst of it, because I, I, I've seen a glimpse of that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. You ain't seen nothing yet. There's nothing that can compare to this. Because we're not looking at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary. But what cannot be seen is eternal. It's a great reminder this morning, isn't it? There's no retirement plan in God's service. And these are some wonderful reminders. I, I quoted down at the bottom of your notes a Puritan who said, sufferings are but as little chips of the cross. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's a great quote. On the next page, I've been trying to give you some work to do during the week if you want. For those eager beavers, I've had a few who've said, hey, could you give us some things to do during the week? Um, we have two minutes, so I want to do this. I'd like to read, this is a prayer a Puritan prayer. Puritans were ministers primarily during the 1600s that they would not conform to the Church of England for a variety of reasons, and most of them lost their churches, etc. Um, you know some Puritan writings, uh, I'm sure, like uh, 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 the Pilgrim's Progress, for instance. But this prayer is fabulous. It's from the book, The Valley of Vision. And I, can we read this together? It's so powerful. Let's just read this. Happy in thyself, source of happiness in thy creatures, my maker, benefactor, proprietor, upholder. Thou hast produced and sustained me, supported and indulged me, saved and kept me. Thou art in every situation able to meet my needs and miseries. May I live by thee, live for thee, never be satisfied with my Christian progress, but as I resemble Christ. And may conformity to his principles, temper, and conduct grow hourly in my life. Let thy unsampled love constrain me into holy obedience and render my duty my delight. 
If others deem my faith folly, my meekness infirmity, my zeal madness, my hope delusion, my actions hypocrisy, may I rejoice to suffer for thy name. Keep me walking steadfastly towards the country of everlasting delights, that paradise land which is my true inheritance. Support me by the strength of heaven that I may never turn back or desire false pleasures that wilt and disappear into nothing. As I pursue my heavenly journey by thy grace, let me be known as a man with no aim but that of burning desire for thee and the good and salvation of my fellow men. Isn't that a great prayer? That's First Peter. That's First Peter in a nutshell. And as Peter stated, our citizenship is not here. It's ultimately in heaven. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder from Peter. Yeah, we know these things. We know that we are to be faithful to you. We know uh, that even in the midst of suffering, you, you sustain us. Well, Lord, it, it's, it's a great reminder this morning as we look at your word in 1 Peter 4 and other texts that this world is not our home. And Lord, uh, there's a day coming when you will say, well done for those that remain faithful, that we are yours. And Lord, you will vindicate your name and those who have stood for it. And we thank you. Be with these men today with, for all of us, that, that our lives would reflect ones who, which are conforming to your will. And Lord, those things of the past help us to continue to sever ties, not just doing those things, but dwelling on those things in our mind. Help us to sever it and to live fully for you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.